Hello. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. We hope that you will be encouraged and it builds your faith. Thanks for listening. Pastor Jacob has uh, the mic and he's going to allow you to ask some questions. I'm going to ask a question first because I'm going to try to get the ball rolling. And um, if you have a question, you, in just a second, you can just slip up your hand and ask Pastor Dave. You know, the last few weeks, Pastor, we've been teaching on the book. Uh, we've been talking about being an overcomer. And uh, there in the book of Revelation, at the end of the seven churches, there's a promise for the overcomers. Matter of fact, um, uh, many of the parables in the Gospels, uh, such as the ten virgins, the wedding of the sun, uh, all of those parables are last day's parables. But it's interesting, um, there's an overcomer's promise, there's an overcomer's, uh, to understand the ten virgins, five were allowed in, five were shut out. Um, what is the promise of the overcomers and what, what, what was meant when Jesus told the seven churches the promise of the overcomers? Yeah, the, the overcomers. Obviously, in, in a lot of nations, in my nation and, and, and in this nation also, a lot of people will claim to be Christians because they go to church or they, they say they believe. But their lives reveal they don't. Uh, they may attend church, but they don't live uh, as though Jesus is Lord in their life. They don't live with the Holy Spirit living in them and guiding them. And the, the overcomers, they are people who actually live the life, without going into detail, because each, each of the seven churches, the overcomers, is given a different aspect. Um, we are clearly told Jesus was very clear that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He tells us that in the Sermon on the Mount. He even says, many on that day, the final day, will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus will say, I don't know you. And they will say, yeah, but we did this and we did that and we did, yeah, but you you never really lived for me. You lived for yourself. Uh, And the the parables he gives in the last days, the man at the wedding banquet, the, the wise and foolish virgins. You see, all the ten virgins thought they were going to heaven. They all thought they were going to the wedding. You know, you talk to people today and you say, do you think you're going to heaven? And they go, oh, yes, I think I'm going to heaven. Well, why do you think you're going to heaven? Well, because I'm a virgin. I'm, I'm, I'm going to belong to God. It doesn't work like that. The, the wise virgins were actually doing something about it. They were taking the oil. And oil is always a picture of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. They were actually asking God to live in their lives. They were, they, were, they were doing something for God. They were serving God. They were genuinely born again. They were, they, they were living by the Holy Spirit. The wise virgins were taken. The foolish virgins were left. And, and the Bible's very clear. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. You're either living for God or you aren't. Attending church does not get you into heaven. Saying you're a Christian does not get you into heaven. Genuinely belonging to God by being born again of his spirit and living for God, you, you are then taken to heaven because God takes his spirit to heaven. And those who have his spirit are taken with his spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who will take you to Jesus. Nothing you can do. It's the Holy Spirit that does that. And so when we have the Holy Spirit, when we're born again of his spirit, when Jesus is our Lord and Savior, then we will be taken. But it, it is a real thing. So an overcomer is someone who is overcoming in their life by living for God. Not just saying, well, I'm, an, you know, I'm a Christian, but having nothing in their life to show they are. Amen. Amen. Who has a question? Anybody have a question? 
Yes. My question is concerning chapter 11 where it's talking about measuring the temple and the altar and the people that were worshiping therein. Um, I'm concerned about the part about the court where the Gentiles are. I don't quite understand what it's talking about when it's talking about under the, the under their feet and I don't understand exactly what it's talking about on the Gentiles not being able to go into the temple. Okay. Now, in, in Revelation 11, it's talking about the temple on earth. Remember Revelation, it says there's also a temple in heaven. The temple in heaven is opened later on. So it, it's, it's talking about the literal temple that's going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. So it, it, it seems to indicate that there's still the out... You see, the temple was in three parts. I'm sure you know that. The Holy of Holies, the Holy Place, then the outer court where the Jews... But then there was the the outer place that was left for the Gentiles, that they were not allowed into the, the real sanctuary. So when the temple is physically going to be built, I think that is a literal description of the temple in the final seven-year period before Antichrist puts himself in that temple. In other words, the temple's going to be rebuilt. But it might mean the whole temple mount doesn't belong to the Jews. There is still an outer area that belongs to the Gentiles. So I, I interpret that literally that there is a temple going to be rebuilt, but there will still be an area in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount that will still be belonging to the non-Jews, which would probably be the, the Muslims in, in the context of our understanding, because the Christians wouldn't be doing that anyway. Uh, so that's how I interpret it. Okay, anyone else? Tani. Nobody knows. There are three theories. Um, it has to be at least seven years before the return because the prophecy says there is seven years afterwards um, where they're burning the fuel and they're, they're sorting out the issues after that. So that's seven literal years. But it's not linked to the rapture in any way specifically. Some people think that battle is of such magnitude and if you read the descriptions of Ezekiel 38 and 39, it says entire armies melt, literally while they still stood up. And because of the contamin, it says the area is contaminated, no one can go in. And so a lot of people, they, they, they look at the ancient language and they deduce they're talking about a nuclear exchange because of how, how the warfare is described, literally fire, liquid fire melting falling from the sky, melting entire armies and, and, and even cities or nations. And so some people think, well, that seems to describe a nuclear war. And so if there was a nuclear war, then no one would know the rapture had happened anyway because there'd be so many people just disappear anyway. And so some people think perhaps the rapture happens at exactly the same time. But some people say, no, it has to happen before that. I don't, it can't, I, I don't see how it can happen after that because then the sevenfold pattern can't be fulfilled. So there is no definitive answer. Some people try and say there is, but I don't think there is. We don't know. There's one thing you do not know in the Bible, and that is when the, when the rapture is. Now, once the Antichrist 
ratifies the seven-year treaty, you can actually work things out to the day. You can literally use Bible prophecy. Once Antichrist uh, implements that covenant, then the time periods can be literally worked out for the, for the remainder of the seven years. You can work out almost to the day what happens because it's all prophesied, but you can't work out what happens before that. Amen. Yes, right here. There's a scripture that says that in Jerusalem it says, compassed by all the nations that the Lord will come back and reclaim her. Yes. Okay, do you believe that the United States also will be a part of that? I believe that when, when all nations are attacking Jerusalem, as prophesied in Zechariah and Ezekiel and in Revelation chapter 17 and 18, the final of the bowl judgments, it is all nations, definitively, definitely. But remember, that is at the end of the seven-year period. So that will be at the end of these horrendous wars, at the end of this horrendous uh, period of God's wrath, where nations won't be uh, definitively described as we would probably understand them today. But it will include, or it will certainly include America, it will include all nations at that final period. Not necessarily before the seven-year period, but at that final seven-year period, it is very clear God says he will bring all nations against Jerusalem. But remember, at that time, the Antichrist and the Beast Empire controls everything. It's only the Jewish nation that is stubbornly resisting it. And so it will include all nations. That is the battle of Armageddon. That is the final battle of Armageddon as we know it, as described in Revelation 18. And that's when Jesus returns at that final um, culmination in Revelation 19. David, you said something that's very interesting to me. You said that we can count from the day that uh, the Antichrist takes over. That means if you're here on earth, how on that day you didn't make the rapture. Yes. That, that's how I interpret the Bible. There are people that disagree with me, but, uh, or disagree. I'm sure you know there are, there are three theories about when the rapture happens. There's, there's pre, the rapture pre-tribulation, there's mid-tribulation, and then there's post-tribulation. And, and people will argue about when the rapture happens because what is the day of God's wrath and whether the, 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 it is the full seven years or whether rapture happens at the beginning or in the middle or the end. It cannot happen at the end. I, I cannot see that at all anywhere. For me, because God always fulfills the pattern of the sevens, and in, you've got to remember the church is the bride of Christ. Whenever you look at the brides in the Bible, they are always taken to safety. And it's usually at the beginning of a sevenfold process. Okay? So when David came to reign in Jerusalem, he'd already been reigning with his bride seven years in Hebron before he came to Jerusalem. So if the son of David, Jesus, is going to return to Jerusalem, he's already been reigning with his bride somewhere else before they return. And in each dispensation of the Bible, you will find that there is a woman that God protects for seven years before he returns her to her land and gives her back the promise. So the Shunammite in Elisha's time, God says to her, go and hide for seven years. And after seven years, you will return and receive everything back. So she was hid for seven years. David's brides were hid for seven years. And you find this pattern throughout the Bible. I can't go into all of it. But when you, when you find a woman in the Bible... 
that has seven in her name, God is showing us something very important, that she's a picture of the bride. Now, I preached this past the last time I was here about Jehosheba. Sheba means seven, Yahweh Sheba, the bride of the seven. She was the one who hid the king for seven years, King Joash, while tribulation and mayhem happened in Israel. And then at the end of seven years, she came back out with the king. So once again, you get a seven-year hiding before the king returns. Um, the queen of Sheba, seven. Uh, Elisheba, Elizabeth, seven. You'll find it, Bathsheba, Sheba, the one who would birth the next king, the woman of the seven, the seven churches. So God's showing us very clearly throughout the Bible, uh, even Jacob's bride, seven years, a seven-year period before he could take his bride. Uh, you'll find the same in Moses. He went to the well and found seven brides. So you'll find this pattern all the way through that the number seven is key to that end time period. So if all the brides in the Old Testament were hidden for seven years, I don't think God would not hide his ultimate bride, the church, for seven years. Even Moses was taken into the ark with the brides and his sons seven days, a full week, Remember, the seven-year period is, is a week, but it's a week of years, not days. So if God hid Noah for seven, a period of seven, before the wrath came in the first judgment, I'm sure he's going to do the same with his bride at the final judgment. So that's why I believe the rapture has to be before the seven-year period. Did you get all that? <laughs> Praise God. That's a great question. Anyone else? Jesse, Dr. DeCat over here. So in Revelation chapter 12, it talks about the dragon and the, the woman. The woman having a baby. Yes. Like, well, it's not them having a baby, but the dragon trying to devour the baby. Yes. What is, because the baby would have been Jesus Christ. Yes. 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 So what, what, what's that about? Jesus going to be born again? No. No. John says, I saw a sign in heaven. You've got to be clear in Revelation when he's talking about something he's literally seeing or a sign of something he has seen. So he describes the woman as the, the sun and the moon and, and the 12 stars. Well, we know from Joseph's dream that the sun and the moon and the, the 12 stars is the nation of Israel. Because Israel, Jacob, interprets it as that. So the woman is the picture of Israel. Now, it was Israel that birthed the Messiah. It's the woman that births the man-child. The man-child is caught up to heaven and he's going to reign with an iron scepter. So that's clearly a picture of the Messiah. So once the Messiah has been raptured up, the dragon is going to persecute the woman. So it's, it's the picture of what's going to happen after Jesus has been taken. He's giving us a picture of how Satan is going to try and destroy the woman, Israel. But God's going to protect the woman and hide her in a place in the desert. So it's a picture as far as I understand that. It's a picture of the 2,000 years of history up to the, the return of the, the man-child with the iron scepter of how the dragon, the serpent, the old, the old ancient serpent, the devil, it clearly defines him as, he's going to try and destroy the woman. He's going to try and destroy Israel. He can't destroy the man-child. He can't touch Jesus. But he can try and destroy the woman who is Israel. So Satan's plan is to get rid of Israel because if he can get rid of the Jews... 
God's a liar. And, the, and Jesus can't return because he's nothing to return to. Remember when Jesus returns, he returns to save Israel. Not the church. He's already saved the church. And he already takes the church. When he returns to Israel, he brings the church with him. In Revelation, the bride has made herself ready and she comes back with the Messiah. But she comes back to save Israel because that's Satan's plan to destroy Israel at that time. Now he wants to destroy the church as well. But um, at that time, he's destroying Israel. So Revelation 12 is clearly a picture of Satan's attack on Israel. He wanted to kill Jesus. He wanted to destroy Jesus. But he failed because he was caught up to heaven. So now his plan is to destroy Israel. He cannot have Israel existing. Or Jesus is, can return. Well, Jesus, Jesus said that as in the days of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, so it, would be day, so it would be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man, and as in the days of Noah. Now, the two things that you find in Lot's time and in Noah's time, there's two things that are, very, that are the same. First of all, the definition of biblical marriage has been abolished. Uh, in the days of Noah, um, you find in Genesis chapter 6, that there's the whole description of the of, of the the fallen angels taking human women and the whole concept of good marriage being um, polluted, and you find the same thing in Sodom, Sodom, because lots lots daughters uh, were were to be married to men of Sodom, but the Bible says all the men of Sodom were trying to get in uh, to um, know carnally the angels, so lots. Daughters were marrying men who practiced different sexual behavior. Um, but the, the story of Lot, and it's the same with Noah, who did God save? He saved the brides. He took them out before he brought his judgment. He took Noah out to safety before he brought the judgment. He took Noah to, uh, Enoch to heaven before he brought the judgment. God's pattern is always to rescue before he brings judgment. 
So before he brought judgment on Sodom, the angels actually said, we cannot destroy this place until we get you out. They didn't tell them, try and reform Sodom. They says, we're getting you out of here. And it's the same with, not, with Noah. God says, I'm putting you in the ark and I'm taking you out of here. And, and, and the pattern and the promises to the final churches in Revelation, the final churches... He's, Jesus promises the church in Philadelphia, the final stage of the church that's being persecuted. He says, I am going to keep you out of, I am going to remove you from the hour of tribulation that is coming on the whole world. So if the hour of tribulation is coming on the whole world, how can Jesus keep that church out of that tribulation? Well, he has to take the church out of the world. He has to remove it. Otherwise, the promise fails. Well, we don't know how big Sodom was. Sodom might not have been that big. But remember, they're just types. They're just typology. It's like only one person was raptured in, in the antediluvian period, which was Enoch. So does that mean only one person is going to be raptured? Well, no. It, 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 there is actually only one person going to be raptured, the bride of Christ. You see, Christ views us as one person. He views his, his bride as one body. So when you're using typology, remember God will always just use one person as an example or one family as an example. The point is Lot, Lot's house was a church in Sodom. Now they weren't perfect. And when Jesus talked about Sodom, he said, remember Lot's wife. Now remember the, the wives, the brides are pictures of the church. So there were three women in Lot's house, three different types of the church. One of them didn't make it because she actually liked Sodom. The other two made it. They weren't perfect. They still had problems, as you read later on. But there were actually three brides, three women saved from Sodom. They're, they're three different pictures of the church. It's the same with the, the ten virgins. It doesn't mean only ten people are going to be saved. Jesus is using the number ten because number ten is the picture of testing in the Bible. And five are wise and five are foolish. Five is always the number of grace in the Bible. The wise virgins applied grace. The foolish virgins abused grace. They thought they were saved, but they didn't do anything about it. The wise ones received grace, but did something about it. And what we find, you find churches that apply grace and churches that abuse grace. They claim they're saved, but they do nothing about it. That is an abuse of grace. That's false grace. A true church receives grace and then is obedient to that power of grace that God gives them. So when you're using typology, God will often use one person or one family as an illustration, like he saved eight people in the, in the ark. Right Now, the population of the world at that time may have been billions of people. But he only saved eight. But he's showing us the typology. He saved the families, his church. The ark's always a picture of the church. The boat's always a picture of the church. He's using the typology to show us. So I don't think numerically you can take it as a proportion of Sodom. He's using it as an example. But you've got to remember how wicked Sodom had become at that time. So I wouldn't... You know, it's like Jesus only took three people at the mountain to be transfigured. You know, it doesn't mean he only wanted three to see his glory. He wanted them all to see his glory. But he was using the three as the three types of believers to reveal that pattern. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about there was only a few in Sodom. 
I would just take it as he's using that as the typology of that. But in the final stage of the world process, um, it will get so wicked once the rapture's happened. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's why we're here. Amen. I'm going to ask Pastor Dave one last question, and then we're going to pray. Have you not appreciated him being here tonight? It's been wonderful. And really, this could go on and on. I mean, we could do this for hours. I mean, there's such depth here. And, and uh, he warned me tonight. He said, you know, this is infinite. It could go on for hours. Uh, but one question that I have for him, and I think it would be relevant to all of us, going forward as the church. Uh, we're living in the day when there's a great division even in the body of Christ. And with all the social media, the access to information that we have, uh, we have to protect ourselves from what is false and what is truth. And uh, I want to ask Pastor to help us discern because you can be a part of different denominations that have different theological positions but that doesn't mean that they're false teachers. It doesn't mean that they're a false religion. Um, and so I'm just going to ask him, you know, what can we do as the church? And how do we distinguish between what is false teaching, what it may look like in the last days, and, and how do we guard ourselves uh, from the authenticity of the Scripture and to stay pure to the Scripture, even though you may disagree theologically uh, with different uh, positions that doesn't necessarily believe they're false teachers. How do we recognize false teaching in the last days and what, what does it look like? Oh, wow. <laughs> well, remember that <laughs> Jesus very clearly said, and, and every one of the apostles, whether it was John, Peter, or Paul, all said in the last days there will be many false teachers. So you've got to understand that to start with. But you've got to understand what false teaching really is. Today, I mean, everything I've just talked about tonight, if you disagree with me on any of those things, it doesn't matter. Because they're not fundamental doctrines to salvation. What you think about the rapture has got nothing to do with whether you're saved or not. Yeah. The t what, what you think about the timing of the rapture, it doesn't matter. That does not mean I don't love you and have fellowship with you as a Christian brother. I'm just trying to interpret the scripture as I think. Now, there's fundamental doctrines on which we must have uh, to have fellowship. If anyone denies those, they are a false teacher. If someone denies that the Bible isn't true, they are a false teacher. If someone denies that Jesus is not the Son of God, they are a false teacher. If someone denies that you can be saved other than by having faith in Jesus Christ, they are a false teacher. If someone denies the Trinity, they are a false teacher. Because the Bible is very clear there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're, they're the fundamental doctrines. What we have in church today is people accusing people of being a false teacher and heresy over subsidiary issues. They're, they're not important. Now, the, the height of Paul's revelation is found in Ephesians. I've just opened this now on my, uh, my phone Bible. And it says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, 
one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. Paul tells the Ephesian church, you must strive, make every effort to keep the unity of the church. A false teacher will break that unity. Jesus said, the apostles said, watch out for those who bring division in the church. That's a false teacher. Because Jesus' body is not divided. Now, they will latch on to something that they have an opinion about that may or may not be true. Let me give you an example. It might be about how spiritual gifts operate. You know, well, you might have an opinion about that. But it's not a fundamental doctrinal issue. It's an opinion. You might not even use spiritual gifts. But if you believe in salvation through Jesus Christ, you believe the Bible is God's word, and you're trusting in God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you're a member of his church, you're a member of his church, and I love you, and you're my brother, or you're my sister, and you've got to love me, because we're going to heaven together anyway, so you may as well get over it. But, <laughs> but you'll get some people come into churches, and it happens in my church, so I'm sure it will happen here, and they'll raise an issue about, it can be about anything, it can be about how they think an apostle operates or the, what the pastor's role is. And, and, and they'll bring, you know they're false, not because of their opinion, but because they use it to bring division. And Paul is saying you fight to keep the unity of the body in the, through the bond of peace. You know, in my family, you know, I've got four children and they don't all agree. But the minute they try and bring division into the family, whoa, hold on a minute. You don't have to like what your sister wears. You don't have to, you know, like that. I, I'm, I don't care. You don't have to like that restaurant or that food. That doesn't matter. You don't have to agree with me about what we're eating for Sunday lunch. I'm not interested. But you are eating what I say but, because I'm the dad. But, but that doesn't matter. But the minute you start telling your brother and sister, we need to leave mum and dad because dad's a false dad. No, hold on a minute. You've missed the point. You don't, I'm still, I'm, you can't say I'm not your dad because I want to eat steak and you want to eat chicken. That does not matter. That's just an opinion. And, and today in the body of Christ, well, I mean, we'll divide over which songs we sing. We'll divide over the color of the chairs. You'll get some people come in and say, well, you know, I think, you know, you know, Pentecostals are this and Baptists are this and Methodists. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You don't bring division. If you believe that, then you go to that church. But don't bring the division into the body that's serving the Lord in that church. That's satanic. That's what Judas did. He didn't like Mary worshipping Jesus like that. He thought the money should have gone to the poor. And so he brought division into the body and killed Jesus. Well, was he right? Should the money have been spent on the poor rather than on the oil being poured on Jesus? Well, he thought he was right. But the point it was Mary's money. She could spend it on what she wanted. What's it got to do with him? Jesus said it was okay, so it's okay. You can argue forever that you think it should have been spent on this. And a lot of churches will argue about money. Well, I think we should be giving to this. doesn't matter. It's what the leaders say. It's what the pastor says. It's what the Lord's doing. It's not a fundamental doctrine. You don't divide over that. And if you do, you're a false teacher. Very good.
Just drop the mic on that, right? And it's been wonderful tonight, and I, I appreciate you staying a little bit later than what we usually do, but uh, uh, you can't have such a wonderful gift that Pastor Dave is and not take advantage of that, and I hope you've enjoyed tonight. I hope you've gotten something from it, and if you want to listen to his teachings and podcasts, you can find them, uh, Bethel Church, I think, on YouTube. Is on right? YouTube, yeah. Yeah, and he's, uh, he's got all kinds of teachings on there, just wonderful and so we're glad he was here tonight. Stand with us tonight. and We have some food in the fellowship. We'd love for you to stay and fellowship with us and eat. And uh, we're so glad. And, um, and so uh, Dana was so proud of you. Praise God. We rejoice in you today. And uh, uh, thank God for you and uh, what God is doing in your life. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for Pastor Dave. Would you all reach your hands out toward Pastor Dave and Carolyn? Father, we thank you for their life. We pray rest and we pray, God, that this coming year would be an incredible year in his ministry. Thank you for the gift of the teacher and the powerful word of God that we have experienced tonight. We pray that you'll keep them safe as they travel home and back to their church. We pray the blessing of God would always follow them. Lord, we pray tonight that we hide the word of God in our heart that we might not sin against you. Thank you for your goodness and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray and everybody say Thank you for joining us for River Valley Community Church's podcast. If you feel led to give, you can click on the donation link in the description or visit our website at rivervalleymadison.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe or share with your friends. Thanks again for listening. God bless you.